your copy to God's Word in the book of Acts, chapter 4, as we continue to work through this book. Acts 4, maybe a daunting task, verses 1 through 22. Acts 4, 1 through 22, entitled this sermon, Proclamation, Exclusivity, and Boldness Equal Being with Jesus. Proclamation, Exclusivity and boldness equals being with Jesus. Now, I know my text, and I know that it is dealing with Peter and John. They are bold and preaching in Solomon's portico, gathering of all these people. Thousands of people are there. And I know that sometimes we can turn our attention to these who are more public figures, and certainly the text has that. But also, before I get too far in my text, I want to remind you that what happens here happens to all genuine Christians. What I'm saying is, is in point number one, the point is going to be that there's a gospel annoyance. That Christians somehow annoy lost people. Okay? I understand we got guys like Cody or Jeff that may be at the stockyards with a half-mile hailer, and that might annoy somebody. But I just want you to understand that it's not exclusive to them. I remember preaching Asley Shaver's funeral with a friend of mine, and uh, Neil McClendon's his name down in Houston. In a big church, hundreds of people, maybe a thousand, I don't know. A lot of people were there. And I'll never forget Neil McClendon got up, and I'd never done a service with him, and he got up and he says, you know why you didn't know Azalee better than you know her? Silence in the room, and he said, because she was godly and you're not. Azalee didn't preach on the street corner, and she didn't have no half-mile hailer, but her life annoyed some people because she was godly. So don't miss that. This is not a sermon exclusively for those who preach publicly. It's a message for just being faithful to the gospel in daily living. On your job, in your home, there's a sense in which purity and godliness and sincerity and honesty and righteousness just has a way of rubbing some people the wrong way. So keep that in mind. All right, now... In the heart of this narrative is this truth that Peter and John have been with Jesus. It's a matter of simple, honest evaluation. If you have a man who spends his time with a bottle, with alcohol, it's not very difficult to notice. I remember growing up, I can tell you when my brother's been drinking. It's not hard to figure out. If a man spends all of his time hunting, it's not hard to figure out that's what he's doing. It's not hard to know. If a man spends his time exercising, it's obvious. If a man spends his time in carnality, it's clear to any discerning mind that this man is head over heels in his carnality. But with Peter and John, it's obvious they've been with Jesus. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they know. Why is it so obvious? 
Because their speech. Because of how they talk. They don't talk like everybody else. Their speech betrays them. Their convictions are causing tension in the room. And then there's this unremitting boldness that no matter what pressures may come, they won't cave to the pressures of their culture. How, How can men stand like this? Ah, they must have been with Jesus. Now, the question for us needs to be rolling around in your mind as we work through this sermon is this. To the observing eye, what does your life communicate? To the observing eye, friends, family, co-workers, church members, what does your life communicate? Your words, your convictions, your decisions, your joys, your interests, your devotions, they are all communicating something. Maybe we can say it this way. Is God pleased with what your life communicates? Or we could make it a little meddling, if you will. Are you willing to change? Are you willing, if God's Word confronted you, you'd say, God's right and I'm wrong? Are you willing to change? So that your life from this day forward could have a different impact than it's having now. Those thoughts. Genuine fellowship with Jesus has a profound, has profound external effects. All right, our text this morning, Gospel Annoyance, Acts 4, 1 through 4. And as they were speaking, Peter and John, to the people, the priests, The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Notice, greatly annoyed. Because, why are they annoyed? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We locked them up. We don't know what to do with them. Verse 4 But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. This word annoyed is caused by provocative activity. Uh, It's to be greatly disturbed by something that's going on that perhaps we don't like, by something that irritates us. Now, in the context, the opposite way, it's like if I go camping out at the campground and my next-door neighbor wants to blare country and western music, I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed to the degree that I got to do something. He said, I want to listen to your goofy, godless music, right? So I'm annoyed. Well, it happens that way in the sense of country music, if you will, but it happens in the sense when God is elevated, the gospel is preached, it causes people to be annoyed. It's not the volume, and it's not necessarily what you look like, it's the content of what's being brought into the situation that begins to cause the annoyance. It can happen in view of thousands, 
It can happen in a hospital room with two people denying the doctor has any power lest God work through him. Any place Christ is inserted into the world, the world is a bit annoyed. It can happen in your family at a family reunion. It can happen at a wedding. It can happen at a funeral. It happens anywhere light is brought in a dark room. Make no mistake about it. Let the annoyance be the result of the gospel. It happens in this church. In this church, there are many times I annoy some of you. This is the nature of the task. I hope that you are annoyed. I really do. He said baptism. He said repentance. He said homosexuality is a sin. That annoys me. Good. Be annoyed. I hope you're so annoyed that you would repent and believe upon Christ. In the book of Acts later, it'll take us a while to get there, there was this slave girl. She had the spirit of divination. And she kept following Paul and them around Silas and just hollering out, hey, men of God, all this type of stuff. And, and as she kept doing this day after day, Paul became greatly annoyed. This woman was wearing him out. And he turned and he said to the, this demonic spirit in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And that spirit came out that very hour. So, so an ungodly woman annoys Paul and Paul deals with the situation. It happens both ways is all I'm telling you. The Christian by nature should bring some level of annoyance to a lost, unconverted world. In our text, why specifically are these religious leaders annoyed? Well, very clear. Peter and John are teaching. They're teaching the truth of who Jesus is. Not only are they teaching, they are preaching. They are not ashamed. They're boldly and clearly making Christ known. But the issue, the primary issue that the religious leaders don't want to talk about is the very thing that they're preaching, the resurrection. This is the issue that's being proclaimed. Jesus Christ is not in that tomb. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. He is alive. They're preaching that. And it's, it's an awful a weird position when you've got a group of religious Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection, know that Christ was slaughtered on a cross, and he was put in a tomb, and he was sealed in the tomb, but yet the stone's been moved, and Jesus' body isn't in there because he was seen by 500 people over here having ministry and over here eating with his disciples, and they can't deny this resurrection. But now he's gone, and now we're rid of him. But wait, these guys are still talking about it. It's annoying them. Who is annoyed? Who's annoyed in our text? Weirdly, it's like religious people are the ones that get annoyed at the preaching of the gospel. I, I mean, I, it's been a long time ago, but I mean, I, I know the honky-tonk woman's closed down, but I, I like the honky-tonk woman. I like Daryl. I like his friends. I, I mean, I like hanging out with the honky-tonk woman. I know it sounds weird for the preacher to hang out with the honky-tonk woman, but hey, they give me a free Coke, they give me a glass of water, whatever. I like the guys. But I tell you this, they had respect for the gospel. In the, not that they embraced it, not that they grabbed a hold of it in a sense, but in a sense, they respected the position Whereas the religious culture of Azel 
and you preach at Walmart or preach at the park or preach at the July the 4th firework festival on Main Street. It's the religious people who are annoyed at these guys standing on Main Street heralding the gospel. Is that not ironic? It's no different, though. This is where we started, Acts chapter 4. The priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they're all religious. They're the guys annoyed. Why? Because it's a shame to them for what they're not doing. Well, what did their annoyance lead them to? It led them to arrest Peter and John. The fear of man constrained them. And they had to do something. They had to make a response. So they lock them up like this will silence the gospel. And you got to love verse 4. The gospel's already gone forth. The teaching's already gone out. It's already been put out there in some form. And our text tells us men believed. This is where we are, right? Why do we preach? Why do we teach? Why do we share gospel tracts? Why do we do what we do? Because that's the means God ordained for people to believe. And in this text, 5,000 men believe. Now, were there women and children? I don't know. I just know the Greek word, and I know here in this text, it's specifically applied only to men. At least 5,000 men come to faith in the Lord Jesus because of teaching and preaching of the gospel. I would say to you, this is no small disturbance. Think about the religious leaders. And in a sense, they've got these people snowed, and now 5,000 of them depart to follow this gospel that's being preached. We're losing power, losing authority. This is a, not a small disturbance. Let's ask a couple of questions, and we'll move on. I don't want to belabor the point, but does, let me ask this this way. Does your, you think it's about for yourself, does your unrelenting commitment to the gospel, does it annoy anybody? Does it annoy your unconverted spouse? Does, does it annoy the children who live in your home? And dad is always talking about the gospel. I wish he could get a, get a life. I mean, why can't he just play video games with me? Why is he always got to read out the Bible? Does, does your life in your home annoy your unconverted kids? Does, does your life annoy anybody at your work and you're there at the work and they're talking about this sexual immorality and this perversion and you're like, I'm not talking that way. I love my wife. I would never speak that way. Does something about your life annoy anybody because of your unrelenting commitment to the gospel? Is it the gospel Listen, is it the gospel that causes the annoyance? Some people annoy people, but it's not as a result of the gospel. So make sure that if you're rubbing people the wrong way, it's not for some personal agenda or some pride issue. Make sure the annoyance comes from the good news of the gospel. Are there any effects to your gospel position? Is there any effect? Is anyone annoyed? Commitment to a gospel issue. All right, moving on. Number two, gospel exclusivity, verse 5 through 12. Look at the text. I'll read through it real quickly. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And all the religious heads are together. With Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly family. 
And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So now this religious body is asking Peter and John a question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now you remember, lame man's been healed. Lame man is standing beside them. Lame man is over 40 years old, according to verse 22. He's obviously completely healed standing there. And they want to know about the power of why he did this. Just stop for a second. You're asking these two guys about what, by what power you did this, but that's not why you locked them up. Right? Why did you lock them up? Because they were preaching the resurrection. You, you locked them up for preaching the resurrection, but you're questioning them about the lame man and how he got healed. Why don't you ask them about the resurrection? They don't want to ask about the resurrection because half of the religious leaders believe in a resurrection and the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection and then it would all turn into some kind of chaos and so we're going to talk about another issue but not the real issue. I just want you to see that. Verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning, (laughs) notice how Peter slips this in, concerning a good deed done, we're being examined for doing good to a crippled man, by what means he was healed, by what means he was saved or delivered. The Greek word is sozo for healed, to be delivered or to be saved. Let it be known to all of you. Let it be known to all the people of Israel. It's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You you know, that one you crucified. Then you see what Peter did? Whom God raised from the dead. You may not want to talk about the resurrection, but I'm talking about the resurrection. You want to know about names and powers? <laughs> Don't forget, I got locked up for preaching the resurrection, and I'm letting you know that guy you killed, God raised him from the dead. I'm still on this one-track agenda that I serve a Savior who's resurrected and alive. That's the issue. Christ reigns from on high. He's alive forevermore. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and it's to him we must give an answer to. And he says, this Jesus, this one that we're talking about, this one, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. What a slap in the face. These religious, God-fearing people have rejected the very one God chose. Verse 12, everybody knows this verse, you probably quoted it or heard it quoted, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Gospel exclusivity. The religious heads gathered that day. The religious Sanhedrin was made up of 71 men. Think of the pressure in the room gathered around 71 men. I remember when I got kicked out of a charismatic ministry many years ago, 1997-ish, 8-ish, and... uh, things escalated, things got to a peaked point, and so they called a meeting, and they brought me into this meeting, and they put me in the corner of the room, the door was on the opposite side, and all these people, I forget, maybe 15, 20 people all gathered and had me pinned in the corner, and they're just drilling me all these questions, all these questions, and it's like, man, just the pressure, and these are just mere men, not even great religious leaders like the Sanhedrin, but I felt the pressure and, and to be able to answer and to state my position. I'm thankful that the Spirit of God empowered me, stated my position, 
and they were forever and ever done with me. But that's what's here, 71, the Sanhedrin, looking them in the eye, pressuring them and asking these questions about power and how this man was healed. How did you do these miracles? Now, in verses 8 through 10, I want you to at least consider what's entailed in the response that Peter gives to this examination. It's masterful, and I love it, the Spirit of God here working through Peter and John. So note one, Peter is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I just pause, I ain't going to belabor the point. Each Christian has the Spirit of God within them. Just know that. You're, you're, not doing, you're, you're not doing gospel ministry on your own, in your flesh, by yourself. I'm scared. I don't know what to say. I, all of those things. Yes, but you have the Holy Spirit of God in you as a believer. And I know it's scary at times. I know it's hard at times. I know pressures are real at times. But he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If you would just step forth in faith, you will find that he will empower you on your job, in your family, whatever the circumstance, I am not going to deny Christ. I'm going to stand, and you'll look back and say, wow, I can't believe I said that. They have the Holy Spirit. Peter was empowered. Peter addresses the leadership respectfully. Note that. You can address your coworkers and families with respect. You can treat them as people created in the image of God and at the same time not compromise the truth. It's an important lesson. There's a lot of gospel ministry out there that thrives off saying these really mean things to these people and then bragging that they were so tough that they told them off. Peter didn't tell them off. Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, addressed them with respect and told them the truth. Peter's answer turns the conversation to a deed of mercy. Peter's answer addresses the Sanhedrin and the entire Jewish nation. Peter's answer puts all of the focus on the name of Christ. You'll notice in our text, right? Peter doesn't say, I'm a good guy, I like to go fishing, I, I've never robbed a bank, I've never done this, and, and, and John, he's a good guy, and he, you know, it, nothing. It's about Christ. What freedom! <laughs> Out in the world in which I live, in the stores in which I go, I don't have to defend myself, promote myself, justify myself, because quite frankly, it's not about me. My responsibility is to tell MB and to tell Jenny and to tell these other people that Christ can save. That's my responsibility. Well, Brother Roundy, you do this and you do that. Fair enough. And a lot more things. But I want you to look to Christ. Right? Is that not the position of the church? I'm, I'm deflecting from me everyone in the room looking and pointing by life and words to Christ. And they always say, well, I remember that time, and I remember that time. Yeah, I remember them all too. That's why I came to Christ, because Christ forgives. Christ set me free. Christ is the one who's made me be able to go through these things in the right way. We point to Christ. That's what Peter does. Peter's answer unites them to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Note, before, just keep this in mind. We're talking about Peter, talking about John, but Peter specifically. Remember, before the death of Christ, before the burial of Christ, before the resurrection of Christ, 
Peter would not stand firm to give an answer to a little girl. I, 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 I don't know him. I, 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 I never met the man. I, I, I don't know nothing. I, I, I'm not me. I don't know. That's the way Peter talked before. Seventy-one elders sitting over him in judgment. It's about Christ. One you crucified. One you stuck in a tomb. That's who we're talking about, Jesus here. What, what happened? This is, this is what the gospel does. I don't want you to miss it. You have the exact same amount of information as Peter does. There's not new revelation here. Peter stands like this. John stands like this because of the reality of the gospel. We have the same gospel. It's, nothing else can make you bolder tomorrow. You have convictions about the gospel. You can stand and face the entire culture and say, no, I will not compromise. No, we got COVID. You can't have church. I'll put on the church sign, open. Why? Because he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And God supersedes the government. Peter's answer holds them culpable for their actions to crucify Christ. Peter's answer emphasizes the resurrection. He does not distance from that. Peter's answer attributes divine healing to Jesus' prerogative to work through them for such a miracle and takes zero credit or emphasis to himself. So that's his response. Radically narrow. Verse 11 and 12, look at the text again. This one, ESV, this Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone salvation and no one else nor the name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved I just want to bring up this point Jesus himself quotes the same psalm in order to make sure that people understand he's talking about them in Psalm 118 verse 22 and 23 it reads like this now listen carefully the stone that the builders rejected there's something missing that Peter's going to add after the word rejected. But let's read the psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, when Jesus quoted this verse, his audience knew he was talking to them. In Matthew 21, this is what Jesus says. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Jesus took Psalm 118, spoke in such a way that those religious leaders he spoke to said, you're talking about us. Yes. Then Peter takes the same psalm and adds two words to it to make sure nobody misses the point. Peter says, the stone, or the, uh, the, the stone that the builders rejected, that was rejected by you. 
Yeah, it's by you. It's, I want all 71 of you here today to understand this. By you. You are the ones who rejected the stone, Christ, that was sent by God. This is very applicatory, very specific, and they feel the burn of such a shot that has come towards their heart. They know that Peter's talking to them. <laughs> the Sanhedrin should have been building the way should have been building the building in a way that honors God. You cannot build God's building without having Christ as the centerpiece. Peter's exclusivity is clear. Now, look again at the text, especially verse 12. At the end, there's only one name given under heaven. Men can be saved. Look at the last line. By which we must be saved. If you see that, at least say amen. I want you to understand what he does not say. He does not say we can be saved. That would have to do with works. It would imply that we have the ability to be saved. He does not say we might be saved, which would be possibility. This would convey an uncertainty. You might get saved. You might not get saved. That leaves a little doubt. Our text says we must be saved, which implies necessity. You must be saved. I must be saved. Yes, you must be saved. Then that means I have need. Yes. Divine necessity. You have to come to this point of realization. Please come this morning. Only God can save you. You need God. You don't need me. In a sense, you don't need the church. You don't need your neighbor. You need someone that has ability. You need someone that has power. You need someone who can raise the dead. You need someone who can give you a new heart. You need someone to give you a new spirit. You need someone who can make your blind eyes see, your deaf ears hear, your lame legs leap, and your mute tongue to rejoice. You need someone who can do something supernatural. We must be saved. Give us a God who would deliver us. You can be direct and respectful at the same time. Your speech, my speech, should always find a way to make the conflict about Jesus. People in religious circles fight about a lot of stuff. You ask Augustine, why do you keep fighting with Pelagius? Because grace is worth it. Grace is worth it. Lastly, gospel boldness. 13 through 22, look at your text. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were, they were astonished. And they recognized they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another and had this meeting saying, well, hey guys, what are we going to do with these men? Uh, obviously a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We, we cannot deny it. They don't know what to do. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, uh, we'll just warn them not to speak anymore in this name. You notice they wouldn't name the name. So they called them, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, they throw it right back on them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So 
your decision before God, you're accountable for that. Now, we already made our decision. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. That's our decision. Do what you do, we'll do what we do, but we've already resolved our spot. When they had further threatened them, whatever that threatening included, they let them go. They couldn't find a way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. Everybody's praising God for what had happened. Verse 22, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And it's an obvious reality, a fact before their eyes, and they can't dismiss it. Marvel, astonish. The Sanhedrin, speechless at the way Peter and John handled themselves. Now, just a few little short lines. What about Peter and John? They were confident, they were clear, they were bold, and they exhibited no fear of man. Straightforward and clear, drawn their line in the sand, this is where we stand. I am Christian. I believe Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ substituted on the cross for me. Christ rose from the dead. I believe upon Christ. He's given me eternal life. I'm forgiven. I'm a saint. I've been adopted. When I die, I will go to heaven. I know this because I'm in Christ, and Christ has saved me. Confidence, clarity, boldness. You say, how can you be so bold? Because of Christ, because of Christ, because of Christ. It's not because of me. I've looked at me, and I'm pretty stinking ugly at the end of the day. But Christ... In him. Who in the world is going to bring a charge against God's elect? And he's elected me in Christ. It don't matter who brings the charge. They got nothing because Christ paid all my debt. And so the Sanhedrin, it's like, what do we say? Blows their mind. Just kaboom. They, they don't know what to do. So here they're like, uh, let me think this through. Okay, these guys did not go to seminary at our school. They don't have a degree. They didn't write a term paper. They didn't go through all of our stuff. You know, this same thing was said to Jesus. They said to Jesus in John 7, How is it that this man has learning he has never even studied? How is it? It's like Jesus gets through with the Sermon on the Mount, and they marvel. How does anybody teach with such authority? And now, these two more dudes doing like Jesus did. They must have been hanging out with Jesus. Unlearned. And you get the, they're common men, idiotes. This is where, where we get the word idiots. It's like, you don't even know how to write their letters. They're just common lay people, amateurs. They're not even specialists. But they're something different. And we can't deny it. Peter and John, here's the deal for all of us. Peter and John were becoming like their master. They were becoming like their master. That's the issue. They were spending time with Jesus. Jesus didn't attend the schools of his day. He didn't run in the circles of the religious crowd. And when he taught with his authority, the people were astonished and they marveled. (laughs) Genuine Christianity disciplined and over the process of time in your family, on your job, wherever you go. Living this type of lifestyle has a way of muting the world. 
It's obvious a miracle has happened. Genuine conversion has a way, something that's unexplainable has a way of silencing people. Think about it. Let's just make up a wild example. We've got to have something extreme. So here's a guy that's an alcoholic. He's a drug dealer. He's a womanizer. He's a bank robber. He's all of this stuff. The guy's just absolutely crazy. He's a terror to society. And then for three years, he's reading his Bible. He's living a godly life. He's preaching the gospel. He's going on mission trips. He's giving his tithes to the church. He's always at the local church serving, raking leaves and doing whatever he can. It's like... The world goes, I don't know what to say. This is how he was. This is how he is. And I don't have nothing else to say. That's us in our families. And families say, I don't like him. I don't like what he does. But obviously he's different. Obviously there's a real change. Obviously something's happened. I don't receive it. But I can't deny the reality of it. That's what, boy, howdy, I could stay a long time, I'll cut it off, but that is the inherent problem of this city. This is Azel religion on steroids. Everybody believes in Jesus and nobody believes them. Everybody goes to church and nobody cares. Why? Because Azel religion is just like the world, only they happen to attend a church. That's not what's going on here with Peter and John and with this lame man that was healed and with all the other converts in the Word of God. That's not what's happening. What's happening is they're coming out and finding demon-possessed men sitting clothed and in their right mind, and they don't know what to do about it. They don't understand what happened that made them so radically different. That gospel is lacking in Azel. Sometimes I think it's lacking in this church, but it's not lacking in the Bible. The gospel actually and really supernaturally changes men forever. It's so to such a degree that the world can't explain it away. It mutes them. They have their meeting. What are we going to do? They're too worried about the crowd. Fear of man has constrained them. They can't deny the verifiable evidence. This man's over 40 years old. They can't explain it away. And they don't know what else to say. They just say, hey, don't talk like this no more. And uh, the authorities, if you can imagine, are saying, you cannot preach or teach. It'd be like, you know, whatever, the police or FBI comes here and says, hey, you can't preach in Jesus' name it by the word Baptist church anymore. It's, it's the same type of thing. It wasn't no different. COVID sanctions, they silence multitudes of churches. Oh, the government says this. Well, let's just all stay at home and watch Oprah. What? I didn't even understand what's going on. It wouldn't happen. Can you imagine, Peter and John, you can't preach because there's a, a, the bubonic plague has broke out, and there's smallpox, and there's this, and there's this. So you don't love people if you come out here and preach. Right? I mean, you know, Calvin, they said, John, they said, you stay in your room because we don't get you sick and die. And at night, he'd climb out his window and he'd go down where everybody was suffering from the plague and he'd preach the gospel. What is he going to do? Verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John are constrained with boldness. When something is believed, it is impossible to suppress. The obligation for what is to be done is put on the religious leaders. Why? 
Because Peter and John already made their decision. Put it back on the government. Put it back on the world. You go decide whatever you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we already made our decision. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you go judge. We've already resolved where we're at. I would encourage each and every one of you this day, even now, at this moment, right now. You want me to dim the lights and get a smog machine and get some smoke rolling and get you to come forward and make a decision or something? I mean, you can do it with the lights on, with everybody, every head up and every eye open. And you can resolve and say, you know what? I'm not going to be a pansy anymore. I'm going to live out my faith for the glory of God. Come hell or high water, I'm all in with Christ. You don't have to tell me that. You don't have to tell your neighbor that. You could just make that the reality of your life, and we'd all know it. This is who we are. This is how we live. This is what we do. It's what we do on Sunday. It's what we do on Wednesday. It's what we do on our jobs. This is just who we are because Christ has saved us. Well, I don't think it's difficult to see Peter and John's position. I don't think you have to go to seminary to figure this one out. But the question is, is what is your position? How confident are you about where you stand with Christ? What level of confidence do you have in the gospel? In order to increase right speech, in order to clarify conviction, and to operate with holy boldness, don't miss it. You have to be with Jesus. That's the issue. And if you don't have time for Jesus, real, legitimate time, you're not going to have boldness, you're not going to have conviction, and you're not going to make any impact in the world. You have to be with Christ in order for these things to be a reality. Well, in conclusion, life and death are realities that each of us face. And thinking about Chris and Raquel, and, and just think about that. And it just really hit me. You go to the hospital, say hello, and four hours later, you know, the guy's dead. I mean, life ends quickly. It's, it's like a vapor. Ten out of ten people die. Everybody in the room is going to die. Imagine somebody, some of you might not come to, back tonight because you're dead. I, I mean, it happens. Peter, John, and all faithful ministers, you know what they do? They preach the resurrection. You can have life. You can have life eternally in Christ. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He's crucified for sure. He died for sure. But he's alive. Everyone who would repent and believe can have eternal life. So back to where we started, and it is the last thing. Back to the beginning of the sermon. To the observing eye, what does your life communicate? Note, whether you like it or agree or don't like it, your life communicates. My life communicates. There's no way around it. You can't be uncommunicative and live. So, embrace it. Feel it. Deal with it. What does my life communicate? Do I annoy anyone? Don't, I thought there might be an amen. <laughs> your words, your convictions, your decisions, your joys, your interests, your devotions all communicate something. 
What are they communicating about you? But more importantly, are they communicating about Christ? That's what's important. Does your life communicate of the worth, the value, the honor, and the respect that Christ deserves? You say, maybe, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, no. Ah, and it's time for you to repent and ask that the Lord would empower you to live in a way that would honor his name, even if it causes annoyance. Lord, I don't want to be status quo. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want my life, like Asley Shaver, who never street preached, never did anything radical, I want my life to communicate godliness. You can do that. My grandmother did that till she was 102. Quiet, simple, servant who loved Jesus. And everybody in the family knew it. My grandmother made people uncomfortable just by being in the room. You know why? Because <laughs> she didn't dress like women dress today. Just the way she dressed was a rebuke to so many people. She was godly. And that's what we're called to be. Those who are in Christ will, by necessity, annoy those who don't want to follow him. Brother Jeff, you come and lead us in a final song.